Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the London School of Economics. The politics this week are about dealing with the recession and particularly dealing with the public expenditure consequences of recession. And those of us like me who are old enough to have lived through recessions in the past, I was sadly a Treasury official in 1976 when the British government had to go cap in hand to the IMF because of its imprudent spending plans, know that this does become a very difficult set of questions and a very preoccupying issue for anybody involved in economic policy. Earlier this week, the Chancellor of the Exchequer delivered his version of a new outline fiscal framework to replace the famous golden rules, which are now, I think, non-operational. Um, and he did that at Cass Business School, which, as I'm told, is an institution somewhere uh, in the east. Uh, but we're delighted that the Conservatives have gone up market um, and are going to deliver their response uh, at the LSE. And we're very pleased to act as uh, a host. Well, we are very pleased to act as a host for all political parties, as you know. But um, certainly the LSE is delighted always to be a centre of debate uh, on economic policy, and that's what we are this week. So uh, we're very pleased to welcome the Shadow Chancellor uh, this morning, who has been in the news a lot uh, recently um, for uh, uh, all sorts of reasons, not all of them totally welcome to him, but there's been an apology, so all that's behind him. So I'm delighted to welcome this morning Mr. Jonathan Ross. So, Mr. George uh, <laughs> Osborne. George. Uh, well, uh, thank you for that introduction, I, I think, uh, Howard. Um, but it's uh, great to be here. Thank you very much for agreeing to host me today. Thank you all for coming to listen. Uh, Howard was just talking about being a Treasury official in the mid-1970s. And I have just come from my office in Westminster. And for a couple of years now, I've had on the wall of my office a series of political cartoons from the 1970s. Uh, and they used to be something of a historical anachronism. There was the Chancellor at the time, Dennis Healy, in one of the cartoons, sitting at his desk in the Treasury with an in-tray. And in the in-tray is unemployment, inflation, world trade recession. Uh, there's another cartoon which shows him raiding a child's empty piggy bank in order to pay his budget deficit. And then there's a third cartoon which has the Labour government's uh, manifesto promises completely overwhelmed by an avalanche uh, of economic bad news. And people used to come to my office, and I used to look at those cartoons, and we used to remark about how the world had changed. Now I look at those cartoons, and I think how much is strikingly similar. And simple Keynesian economics and the active demand management that it recommended were comprehensively discredited in the stagflation of the 1970s. Repeated attempts to prevent unemployment rising by pumping demand into the system through public spending only succeeded in raising inflation and undermining the credibility of public finances. And these attempts at Keynesian demand management culminated, as Howard just reminded us, in 1976 with the humiliation of an IMF bailout. 
the last time still that the IMF has had to come to the assistance of a major economy so far. And today I want to set out the choice that is now becoming clear about how to deal with this recession. Why we disagree as Conservatives with the Keynesian approach that Gordon Brown appears to be taking. And why we believe that our positive alternative based on fiscal responsibility is not only the best way to deal with the recession, but is the best way to prepare for prosperity and a new and better economy in the years ahead. We left the old Keynesian world behind when we adopted a fundamentally different approach. And this approach learned from the failures of big state solutions. The approach learned from the economic disasters brought about by Keynesian demand, and it was not laissez-faire. The new approach recognized the vital role that the state must play in managing the economy and actively helping families and businesses through difficult times. In macroeconomic policy, the approach was best encapsulated by Nigel Lawson's Mace Lecture in 1984. He said that it was the job of monetary policy, not fiscal policy, to manage demand. And while monetary policy is still free to act in order to stimulate demand, the priority of fiscal policy should be stable public finances and long-term sustainability, fiscal responsibility. That conservative approach of monetary flexibility and fiscal responsibility became the consensus in developed economies around the world and remains the consensus two decades later. As Terry Burns, Lord Burns, Gordon Brown's first permanent secretary at the Treasury, put it earlier this week, I think that monetary policy ought to be used as the main weapon. Of course, it would be irresponsible to assume that the future will always be like the past. For a start, we enter this recession with record government borrowing and the highest personal debt of any major economy in the world. But we don't know how that and the credit crunch will affect the traditional, the traditional transition mechanism that turns lower interest rates into higher demand. <clears throat> so if we reach the point at which interest rates can go no lower, or if it becomes apparent that the monetary policy lever is not working as it should, then we, we, we would be in dangerous and uncharted territory for the UK economy in modern times. But with interest rates still at 4.5% in the UK, we are a long way from that point. But while monetary policy should play the active role in stimulating demand, fiscal policy does not simply stand still. Government borrowing rises automatically in a recession as tax revenues fall and spending on unemployment benefits rise. This is what is meant by the term, the automatic stabilizers. And that is not a virtue, it is a necessity. These automatic stabilizers should be allowed to function, and that is what is starting to happen now. But we shouldn't be fooled. This increase in borrowing is the inevitable consequence of recession, not a strategy to fight it. It's an overdraft, not a plan. The fact remains that you should let monetary policy do the heavy lifting in stimulating demand. This economic consensus was endorsed by Gordon Brown in his Mace Lecture in 1999. Indeed, he sought repeatedly throughout the 1990s to demonstrate his adherence to this approach in order to persuade people that Labour had changed and would not repeat the mistakes of the 1970s. 
Gordon Brown told the Labour Party conference in 1997 that we have learnt from past mistakes you cannot spend your way out of a recession. The year before, he said that losing control of public spending doesn't help the poor. It's those who depend on public services who suffer when spending is reined back. And a Treasury document he published in 1999 concluded, loosening fiscal policy when the underlying structural fiscal position was poor could damage consumer and business confidence, thus having the opposite effect to that intended. Labour's abandonment of Keynesian demand management and the adoption of conservative fiscal responsibility was the centrepiece of the image of the prudent Chancellor that Gordon Brown initially tried to portray. Now, as we all know, it turned out to be more image than reality. Gordon Brown started to abandon the practice of prudence almost as soon as he delivered that Mace lecture, in which he most extensively set it out. And instead of using monetary policy to manage demand, an unsustainable debt fuel bubble was allowed to develop. And instead of fiscal responsibility, we had reckless government borrowing, which meant that fiscal policy proved totally unsustainable as soon as the bubble burst. This was contrary to the tenets even of Keynesianism, let alone the new consensus around conservative fiscal responsibility. Because Keynes did not just argue that governments should borrow in bad times. He also argued that they should put money aside in good times too. As the Institute of Fiscal Studies put it, Mr Brown did not leave his successor as Chancellor with the fiscal room to cope with even a modest economic slowdown, let alone the problems we currently face. That's a technical way of saying he didn't fix the roof when the sun was shining. And the facts show that our economy is in significantly worse shape to cope with this recession than it was before the last one. In the last full fiscal year before the recession of the early 1990s, Britain had a small budget surplus of 0.2% of GDP. In the last full fiscal year before this recession, we had a deficit of 2.6% of GDP. That's a difference of £39 billion in today's money in the wrong direction. But if Gordon Brown's practice of prudence was already long dead, what's striking is that in the last four weeks or so, he has abandoned the rhetoric of prudence as well. And in the process, he has explicitly abandoned the modern mainstream consensus on fiscal responsibility and appears to be returning to the failed and discredited approach of the 1970s. He has surrendered the intellectual ground of responsible economic management in favour of good old-fashioned Keynesian demand management. So he's abolished those fiscal role, rules, but he's not replaced them with anything else. He's encouraged press speculation about Keynesian spending splurges, but he's not set out any kind of plan. In fact, if you listen to the government's pronouncements, it's not very clear what their position actually is. Just consider these four headlines from recent days. Darling, we must spend, spend, spend our way out of the crisis. Darling, to reassure on borrowing. Darling, taxes may rise in the downtime, downturn. Darling, hints at tax cuts to help poorer families. Now let's take, for the purposes of my talk today, Alistair Darling and Gordon Brown at their word. Let's assume they really mean what they say when they say they're going to go on a spending splurge, that they are abandoning that pretense of fiscal responsibility, that they're going to try and spend their way out of a recession. And I think if they do that, that means there is a clear choice emerging between the two political parties about how to tackle the recession.
First, there is the choice of spending without restraint and borrowing without limit. Again, the choice that Gordon Brown at least seems to be making. I think that is a weak and irresponsible choice. Weak because this talk of a spending splurge is only designed to give the impression of activity and action. Irresponsible because I will argue it leads to economic ruin. It makes it much more difficult for the Bank of England to achieve a sustained reduction in interest rates. It saddles this generation and the next with a burden of debt that could take a decade to pay off. It means you end up spending more on paying debt interest than defending your country or educating your children. It means damaging tax rises in the future at the very moment when you want to be trying to reduce taxes to help the recovery. It may even involve another Tempe-style tax con where he tries to fool people again. But under Gordon Brown and this government, everyone knows we will have higher taxes for many, many years to come. Even a modest dose of Keynesian spending, say increasing spending by an additional 1% of GDP, means that in the end, taxes will have to rise by the equivalent of almost 4p on income tax. That is not just a tax bombshell. It's a cruise missile aimed at the heart of a recovery. And in extremis, it can mean you lose the confidence of international markets. There are limits to borrowing, and the Prime Minister needs to understand that, even after you've abandoned your fiscal rules. Today, everyone assumes that the only question is how much more does the British government want to borrow from the markets? But talk to former chancellors of the Exchequer, and they will tell you that at some point the question becomes how much more are the markets prepared to lend? That's why there are limits to borrowing. Not political limits, but actual limits. Limits to what can be lent and limits to what a country can carry into a recovery. And amazingly, there are signs that some part of the political world still needs to learn these lessons all over again. As Michael Saunders, an economist at Citigroup, one of the few leading economists who foresaw the current crisis, put it last week, the speed with which the political debate already is turning to fiscal loosening raises risks that the overall fiscal loosening in the recession and pre-election period will be so big that the fiscal deficit itself will become a destabilizing factor for the economy in the coming years. In other words, the Prime Minister's desire to spend his way out of a recession will not only make the recession worse, it will undermine the recovery too. And this is not some argument just about economic theory. It's about real lives, real jobs, real homes. The risky consequences of irresponsibility are not merely a theoretical possibility. They are happening all around us in the world today. The citizens of Ukraine, Hungary and Pakistan are now learning what happens when the markets lose confidence in an entire country. Their sources of external financing that appeared to be reliable have dried up with astonishing speed. Several countries in Eastern Europe, Asia and Latin America now risk a repeat of the Asian financial crisis of the late 1990s. At the moment, these problems are limited to emerging markets. But given the remarkable events of recent weeks, we cannot be certain that they will remain so. The Governor of the Bank of England himself has highlighted Britain's unusual dependence on external finance. The coverage of Mervyn King's speech last week was dominated by his use of the R word, the recession word. But in a sobering passage, he noted that those external inflows have fallen sharply. 
a mild form of the reversal of capital inflows experienced by a number of emerging market economies in the 1990s. That is an extraordinary parallel for the Governor of the Bank of England to have to make. Even more sobering was the warning that followed. Unless they are replaced by other forms of external finance, he said, the adjustments in the trade deficit and exchange rate will need to be larger and faster than would otherwise have occurred, implying a larger rise in domestic saving and weaker domestic spending in the short run. Rising domestic saving and weak domestic spending are central bankers' code for a severe and lasting recession. And most of these capital inflows have been used to finance private sector borrowing, but the same dangers now apply to government borrowing. In the 14 quarters from the beginning of 2005 to the middle of this year, overseas investors bought three quarters of the total net UK gilt issuance. But the head of one fund has already warned that the Treasury can no longer take it for granted that foreign buyers will automatically turn up at bond auctions. They said, we are nearing the point where Asian and Middle East investors are going to charge a much higher premium for holding British sovereign debt. Once a government loses credibility, these investment shifts can happen with alarming speed. And already, the spread on credit default insurance for the UK government debt has widened from almost zero a year ago to 60 basis points today. That is 50% higher than for French debt and twice as high for German debt. And there's another vital reason why we must resist spending splurges and irresponsible borrowing. An IMF survey published earlier this month concluded, and I quote, that increases in interest rate risk premiums as a result of debt concerns can render fiscal multipliers negative suggesting that discretionary fiscal stimulus may do more harm than good. Put it another way, there's no point pumping more government money into one end of the economy if it delays the lower interest rates that will stimulate private sector activity at the other end of the economy. And there's another reason for fiscal responsibility in a recession. If you don't keep a control on public finances, you risk saddling your economy with so much debt that it stifles a recovery for many years to come. That is not a rock of stability. It is a ball and chain around the British economy. So everyone needs to understand the true weakness of our fiscal position under the current government. And we need to confront the Prime Minister with the reality. He's got to stop blithely pretending that he can borrow as much as he wants. He can't. Borrowing has limits. We risk Britain's international credibility at our peril. And that is the choice that Labour offers. Irresponsible borrowing now, higher taxes later. Threatening the, economics, threatening the country's economic recovery in order to try and achieve his own political recovery. There is a positive alternative. And that is to stick with fiscal responsibility. What I'm going to argue now is the responsible road to recovery. Allow monetary policy to do its job. Allow the automatic stabilizers to work. And do nothing that, make the, that makes the Bank of England's job more difficult. Use timely and targeted intervention through the tax system to help families and businesses through difficult times. And by ensuring we don't borrow without limits in a recession, we will open the way to lower interest rates now and lower taxes later in the recovery. At the root of this entire approach is fiscal responsibility. Fiscal responsibility is not merely the absence of irresponsibility. 
It is a positive virtue that requires hard work and discipline to achieve. It's what strong governments do and what weak ones cannot achieve. It's what we as a conservative government will intend to achieve. That's the economic change we will offer. And how will we achieve it in practice? Let me set out now very clearly what we would do if we were in office tomorrow with the responsibility of dealing with Labour's recession and clearing up the mess that they've made of our economy. First, we would establish a credible framework for bringing the public finances under control. Second, we would use timely and targeted interventions through the tax system to help families and businesses through the recession. And third, we would start even now to prepare the economy for recovery. Let me take each in turn. First, the vital importance of a credible fiscal framework. As Martin Wolf wrote earlier this month, the UK needs a renewed fiscal framework if fiscal credibility and sterling's acceptability are to be preserved. Without these, all will be lost, he wrote. After Alistair Darling's speech earlier this week, Britain doesn't have a fiscal framework at all. He scrapped the fiscal rules but put nothing in their place. He has left a vacuum at the heart of the government's economic policy. In its place, we would put a credible medium-term strategy for restoring the public finances to balance. We set it out last month in a detailed plan for economic reconstruction. It establishes the target of a balanced current budget and falling debt at the end of the forecast period, policed by a powerful and independent Office for Budget Responsibility that will publish independent fiscal forecasts and hold governments to account. We're being advised by two exceptionally capable and renowned economists on how to put this framework into practice, Sir Alan Budd and Professor Ken Rogoff. We believe that this is the only way to restore credibility to the public finances and to minimize the possibility of a disastrous loss of international confidence. Now, since Alistair Darling regularly adopts conservative policy, I hope he steals this policy too. It is in the national interest, I would argue, that he does. The second component of our plan to deal with the recession is to help families and businesses through, through the recession with timely and targeted interventions through the tax system. Now, this is the duty of government when times are difficult. We should not stand by while families are losing their homes and good businesses are forced under due to short-term cash flow problems. But the help we should give should always be responsible. We should not try to help people in a way that imperils the public finances, because in the end that would harm everybody. So our plan would be to help people directly by getting money into their pockets through the tax system. Despite the government's current claims, there is no evidence to support the effectiveness of trickle-down public spending, the effect on demand of big government spending programs. Indeed, the evidence from around the world suggests that tackling recessions with big spending does not work. The timing is almost always too late, the value for money is often very poor, and public spending can stand in the way of, or indeed even push aside, much needed private investment. Japan is a classic example of all three. Between 1992 and 2002, the Japanese government net debt grew by 58% of GDP. Over the same decade, the economy grew by only 9%. The result was a crippling debt burden and a landscape littered with the evidence of endless white elephant public works programs. Big spending and big government is just as wrong in a bust as it is in a boom.
And the governments say they will bring forward specific programs that have already been budgeted for. But the government's record of delivering big capital projects on time and to budget does not exactly give you faith that this is the best way to beat a recession. Not this one, anyway, because it will be too late for all that. To take the example that Labour themselves give to justify this neo-Keynesian approach, take the school building programme. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Until you hear that two-thirds of Labour's new school building projects are currently delayed. And then there's the private finance initiative. £23 billion worth of PFI projects are due to be signed over the next five years. But these projects are now in doubt because the credit crunch means it's next to impossible to raise money in the private market. I find it astonishing that a Labour government can put its faith in this kind of trickle-down economics. It is completely inadequate and an unserious response to the tough economic times this country is facing as a result of economic incompetence and mismanagement. Instead of trickle-down spending, we should focus on a much more timely and targeted tool, taxation. In recent weeks, we've set out a series of funded and practical policies that would help families and businesses immediately. They include a council tax freeze, so that's one tax that's not going up, a chance for small and medium-sized companies to defer their VAT bills for up to six months so that they're not driven out of business by cash flow problems, a cut in payroll taxes for the smallest companies to boost employment. And on top of these, we would stop the planned tax rises on family cars and small businesses. Now, on, these, uh, on their own, these individual measures won't stop Labour's recession, but taken together, they would reduce the human cost of this crisis and speed the recovery without ruining the public finances in the process. The third and final component of our plan to help deal with the recession would be to make sure we prepare for the recovery, not just survive the downturn. Over the past decade, 70%, 70% of our economic growth has come from just three sectors, housing, financial services, and government spending. We have seen where this dangerously narrow economic base has left us, more vulnerable to the financial crisis than any other major economy, and facing a tax black hole as receipts from property transactions and the city dry up. As Warren Buffett so memorably put it, you only learn who's been swimming naked when the tide goes out. Well, the tide has gone out, and it's not a pretty sight. But Gordon Brown's imbalanced economy hasn't just brought us to where we are today. Looking forward, it means our prospects for growth are weaker than they should be in the recovery. Unlike many other countries in Europe, we can't turn to a strong manufacturing base to provide export-led growth because manufacturing has shrunk by more than a million jobs over the past decade. We can't put our faith in the high-tech service sector, like in America, to drive growth, because we haven't created the right conditions for it to flourish successfully over the previous decade. Take a sector like green technology, an emerging global market that is expected to be worth trillions of pounds in the decades ahead. The UK is clearly failing to fulfil its potential. According to official government figures, UK firms have less than a 5% share of the global market for green goods and services. Less than France, less than Germany, less than Japan, and of course less than the United States. But the structural imbalance of the British economy after the last 11 years goes beyond the narrow sectors upon which growth has relied. It applies to the geography of growth too. 
Labour's multi-billion pound regeneration schemes have fundamentally failed to achieve the goal of stimulating regional growth outside the southeast of England and London. And all this has got to change. We don't just want Britain to survive the recession. We don't want to go back to Labour's old economy. We want to help build a new and better economy. We need economic change, not more of the same. So we will introduce a simpler and much more competitive tax system, cut the headline rate of corporation tax for businesses large and small, tackle the red tape that gets in the way of small firms. We'll create a better and more balanced and more modern enterprise economy. And we'll do that not just because we're going to ask government to get out of the way in certain respects. As I've said many times before, while we must be aware of the limitations of government, we should be never limited in our aspirations for government. And I would argue this country needs a new vision to bring about the skills, the energy and the transport infrastructure that will enable new jobs and new growth in the new industries and new markets. And again, I would argue it's my party showing the way forward. To improve our skills base, we transform our school system through a supply-side reform, creating more and better school places in communities. To help British companies claim a bigger share in the market for green goods and services, we would lead a change to green taxes, introduce the world's first trading market for green companies, and create a system of feed-in tariffs to incentivise the development of micro-generation technologies. To promote enterprise in every corner of the country, we would implement our detailed plan to open up the £125 billion of government procurement to small businesses. And to unleash the dynamic regional growth, we would start the plans now to build in the future a high-speed rail system that will link cities across Britain and transform regional economies. Never again must we leave ourselves so dependent on a few narrow sectors and regions for growth. We won't. We will create an economy that is truly built to last. So the keystone of modern conservative economic policy is responsibility. Responsibility when times are good to fix the roof and set aside money for a rainy day. Responsibility too when times are tough so the country is not crushed under a burden of debt that kills off any chance of lower taxes in the future. Gordon Brown has abandoned not only the practice of prudence but its rhetoric too. He's trying to spend his way out of a recession, and that will not work. That means there is now a clear choice in British politics. Irresponsible borrowing now and higher taxes under Labour, or the responsible Conservative plan, enabling the Bank of England to deliver a sustained cut in interest rates and lay the ground for lower taxes later, helping families and businesses today by getting money into their pockets directly instead of hoping that trickle-down public spending will work one day, building a better economy for the future through economic change, not more of the same. Above all, preparing for the recovery through fiscal responsibility, not burying it under a mountain of debt before it even starts. Thank you very much. Well, George has kindly said he'll take a few questions, and I think he's going to stay at the lectern to do that. But um, there are microphones around which will be thrust in your face, and we will not ignore the cheap seats uh, at the top if anybody um, wants to. Uh, who would like to kick off? Uh, just the woman behind. Yeah, just take behind you, Beth. Yeah. Sorry, just to clarify. Um, so if you could say who you are, and that would be. Oh, I'm Kimberly Henderson. I'm a master's student here at the LSE. Um, your policy prescriptions seem to involve 
a balanced budget and cutting taxes. Does that mean you would cut government spending in a recession as well? Well, the, what I've said, first of all, is that you need to um, set up a framework that over the medium term returns the budget to balance. I'm not saying you can do that this year, next year. You've got to let the automatic stabilizers operate. But you should have a credible fiscal framework that the international markets can see and have confidence in and the British public can see and have confidence in that delivers uh, that uh, re restoration of balance and stability over the forecast period with, and this will be the first country in the world to do this in the way I'm proposing, an absolutely independent office for budget responsibility, publishing the fiscal forecast that the Treasury currently does, making an assessment of uh, the true liabilities of government both on and off the balance sheet, and telling the public and the markets whether the government was on course to deliver its uh, proposed objective uh, or not. On, on the help in the recession, the proposals we made are all funded. In other words, they are not, we haven't borrowed or suggested borrowing large sums of money to fund these things, uh, which might imperil the public finances. We've identified some very specific ways of paying for them. Take the council tax freeze. You know, we have suggested, like many companies, that the government should reduce its advertising budget at the moment. You know, it seems simple, but you'd be amazed how much the government spends on advertising. Uh, so, so we've, we've insisted that these things should be properly funded and accounted for uh, because at the heart of any approach to a recession, we believe, has got to be holding on to credibility over the management of public finances. Thanks. A question down the front row. Chris Cummings, I run the Association of Independent Financial Advisors. Uh, firstly, to say thank you very much for, uh, for a very good, very dynamic speech. Um, a couple of points I'd like to pick up on. The first one was uh, freedom to let the Bank of England go about it, its business. Um, my question is, do you feel the Bank of England is being too timid when you compare US interest rates with those of the mm. UK? And certainly from, from my perspective, how slow the Bank of England has been to take some necessary steps. Uh, and uh, the second part of the question, most of my members are small businesses. So the help you can give to small businesses is always greatly appreciated. We've been penalised recently by having higher business taxes, higher corporate rate taxes than large companies. Uh, and I wondered what the Conservative plan was to um, redress that balance, if not to, uh, to free it up a little bit, mm. because small businesses are the, the powerhouse of, of growth particularly, but we suffer most in recessionary times. Mm. Well, first of all, on the Bank of England, um, let me say this. The, the judgment of when to cut an interest rate and by how much must be for an independent monetary policy committee. But it is a statement of fact that interest rates in this country at 4.5% are very much higher than interest rates, for example, in the United States of America. So there's plenty of room to reduce interest rates. And one of the main arguments I've been making in my speech is that it is the general consensus that you allow monetary policy to take the strain in the recession and try and stimulate demand. And I'm sure the Monetary Policy Committee are more than aware of, of that and need to bear that in mind. Uh, so you know, I'm not going to comment on individual decisions by the MPC, but the overall approach must be now to do what you expect uh, monetary policy to do in this situation, which is to stimulate demand. And uh, as I say, there's a clear gap between the rates in this country and the rates, for example, uh, in the US. 
On the on small businesses and small companies, uh, it's, it, it is an, a remarkable fact that the small companies' tax rate is actually rising at the moment. So it's gone from 19% to, uh, to 20% to 21%, and it's set to go to 22% next April. I mean, I can't think of another country in the entire world that is planning to raise the small companies' tax rate at the moment. Uh, it's clearly the wrong thing to do. We would cut it back to 20%. We'd pay for that to make sure it's funded uh, by getting rid of the uh, investment allowances which were introduced, which many small businesses can't use and are very complex. Uh, so, but we would get that company's rate down. And by the way, if you want a kind of for, you know, um, early warning of, the, um, of a forthcoming political row in British politics, it is going to be about whether Labour proceeds with its plan to increase the small company's tax rate in April. Thanks. Um, who's next? Yeah, over here. Second, uh, second row. Hello. Hello, my name is Kelly, and uh, I'm second-year student from SE. I wonder, do you think UK will replace the United States to be the most powerful financial centre in the next 20 years? Thank you. Well, I think there was an um, opportunity about a year ago for London to be the absolute uh, preeminent international centre for uh, finance. Um, and uh, it's quite a remarkable thing. If you look at the annual report from Goldman Sachs this year, the picture on the front cover is of the City of London. Uh, this is the annual global report from Goldman Sachs. So there is that opportunity, and financial services are tremendously important to this economy going forward, as they were in the past. What I've argued is it needs to have other sectors as well that are strong, like manufacturing and green technology and so on. But financial services, our largest industry, is going to remain tremendously important. We want the city to be uh, still a, a hub of international finance and the preeminent international finance centre in the world. Uh, I suspect the big issue will be less the competition with New York and more the competition with some new emerging financial centres in the um, Gulf states, for example, uh, and potentially in India, as well as the you know, more traditional centres in the Far East. So, um, you know, th there's still going to be competition to host financial services. The judgment we've got to get right in this country and indeed around the world is to balance effective regulation so we don't end up with the you know, crisis we've seen over the last year while remaining competitive. And, I, you know, I am all in favour of international discussion and cooperation on those issues. I think in the end, you know, you can't regulate mortgages in Halifax through some international body like the IMF just as you can't regulate mortgages in Alabama through some early warning IMF system, uh, the, you know, some of the principal uh, responsibilities for regulation will remain with domestic regulators, but cooperation at international level will be important and will maybe avoid a kind of uh, competitive rush to the lowest common denominator, which um, then would imperil at a future point the, well, the uh, financial system again. Thank you. Given what's happened to investment bank shares over the last month, that might be Goldman Sachs' last annual report. <laughs> um, I'm going to take one over here and then one over there. That's just to keep you running. Uh, Hugo Fitzgerald, it's just a question. You've just been mentioning um, the importance of uh, yeah, connections with India uh, and indeed China uh, and the importance of the City of London as an international hub. Uh, and previously in your speech, uh, you mentioned um, uh, the importance of transport infrastructure uh, and then you later went on to mention high-speed rail. Uh, given this, uh, were you, are you sort of, uh, in a position now of regret uh, that uh, Theresa Villiers and indeed David Cameron 
uh, talked about um, not pushing ahead with the third runway at Heathrow, uh, given that uh, your excuse for not going ahead with it is that your high-speed rail um, to Leeds, Bradford and Manchester uh, would negate the need um, for a third runway. Uh, but in fact, um, what, would actually, that would, what that would actually mean uh, is that would take away 30% of the demand for the third runway, leaving 70% unfulfilled. Um, so you talked about the City of London being an international hub, but you're prepared to get rid of the third runway. Uh, you throw all plans for the third runway. Is there something you, you want to uh, potentially revisit, given the business reaction uh, to that? Uh, no is the short answer to that. Um, I represent an airport constituency, as it happens. Manchester Airport is partly in my constituency. And um, I'm well aware of the tension that, between the environmental impact of an airport on the people who live around it and the um, potential for economic growth that an airport brings. I literally represent people who work at the airport and the same people who complain about aircraft noise. Uh, so um, I'm well aware of the, you know, the tension. I don't think, and nor does many other people, um, not least, for example, Bob Ayling, former chief executive of British Airways, that the environment, that the economic case for the third runway has been made uh, adequately, and that as a result, the environmental case against it uh, should carry the day. Let's be clear where the government is. I mean, your, the, the implication of your question is the government's going to build this runway. Um, whatever Gordon Brown says rhetorically, of course, the government has not actually committed to building the third runway. It's uh, uh, undertaking a study. More to the point, there is a growing rebellion in the Labour Party about the third runway, including government ministers now coming out against it. So I suspect, we may, you know, I may be wrong about this, that we will see a U-turn in government thinking on the third runway. On the high-speed rail link, again because of the constituency I represent, you know, it is striking that you can go almost anywhere now in Europe and, have a, and see a high-speed rail uh, system either long established like in France or indeed newly being built as in Portugal which is, think, which is undertaking one or China of course to go the other side of the world is building a high speed rail link between Beijing and um, Shanghai so the, it, you know, we have such a uh, untapped potential for high speed rail in this country I think there is a very strong economic argument and regional argument for proceeding with uh, high speed rail I think we better take one more was over here thanks Hi, Mr. Osborne, Lawrence Norman of Dow Jones and East Wires. You mentioned the pound and the weakness in sterling um, and talked about it potentially as, as, as a problem. Is there any place in a, would there be any place in a Conservative government to intervene to support the pound in any circumstances? Well, um, given what happened when previous governments tried to um, support sterling or peg sterling or whatever, um, I'm reluctant to do that. Um, the, I'm reluctant to think about that. Um, the um, the, the point about the, the best thing you can do for your currency is to have international credibility with your, you know, your future budget and your future public finances. Um, and of course, markets will make a judgment about the state of your economy and, and the state of your finances. But one of the central arguments I've made here is that there is a limit to public borrowing. The, the debate at the moment in British politics, if you read the newspapers, listen to government ministers, is the, the question, how much is Gordon Brown going to borrow? It is not the question, how much are people prepared to lend to Gordon Brown? And uh, again, uh, to repeat a point I made in the speech, if you ask uh, people who've done the job of Chancellor Exchequer before, they will tell you that that question can quite quickly loom in a recession. So there are limits to public borrowing, and uh, the, as I say, to, the best thing you can do for international markets is ensure that they have confidence 
in the credibility of government economic policy. So there was one final one there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, David Thompson, BBC News. I mean, given that if you form the next government, the cupboards like to be fairly bare, can you rule out having to borrow money to pay for tax cuts to stimulate the economy? And what would you do as Chancellor that the present incumbent isn't already doing to help the Bank of England cut interest rates? Well, let me take both those questions. First of all, on, on tax, you know, no, no one ever doing my job has ruled out tax rises. Uh, but that is not, you know, we are doing everything we can to ensure that if there's a Conservative government, we'll be able over time to reduce taxes. And that's our intention. Uh, I don't know what the state of the public finances are likely to be like in 2010. There are still two pre-budget reports, two budgets before a general election. And one of the reasons for giving this speech today is to alert the country to the choice that might be made by the government, that there is a high price to pay for less, losing control of the public finances, that there is a high price to pay in a recovery for saddling the economy with a burden of debt. Uh, and uh, that, you know, that is a choice that Labour now face. They are the people in government. If I was in government today, I would be setting out this week a framework for fiscal responsibility with the independent office that would command, I hope, international confidence, would show people that the government actually has a plan to deal with the recession and a plan to deal with the public finances. And I would also be introducing funded targeted tax measures, instead of speculating about big government spending programs that I don't think are very effective, that would actually help people uh, by, for example, freezing council tax or helping small businesses with their payroll taxes. So that's the difference. And when it comes to interest rates, of course the Bank of England, as I say, the Monetary Policy Committee makes its own decisions. Uh, but it, as, it, you know, as they teach you at the LSE, you know, governments have an impact on that. And uh, fiscal policy, if it is grossly irresponsible, if you're borrowing without limit, if you're trying to spend your way out of a recession, will, all other things being equal, have an impact on monetary policy decisions? I can see Howard nodding at that point, which means I uh, must have said something vaguely accurate, which is very good news. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, George. Um, well, I think we ought to wind up there. George, you don't know what a tribute it is to you that you actually managed to get some students out of bed before noon, um, which is something most of our professors tell me they can't do, particularly on a Friday. Uh, so thank you very much for coming. Um, we're delighted to uh, have this very serious presentation of economic policy. The questions have shown a lot of interest in it. We're very pleased. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>